Lord Jesus, we find ourselves in this moment hanging on your words. We are grateful for the Holy Scriptures. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to receive. Give us the will to obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Passion Week, um, the word passion comes from the Latin word for suffering, is the time in which we think about the suffering of Jesus leading up and culminating in his crucifixion. And we recognize the importance of this particular week as we think about Christ dying and rising, what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 15, that which is of first importance. Mm -hmm. And we know uh, the events of Good Friday and Easter um, are of, of central importance for a number of reasons. And one of the ways it's illustrated is by how much attention the gospel writers give to just this one week of Jesus's life and ministry. It's really uh, astonishing how much time is devoted to this particular week. It's also illustrated by the creed that we say often, the, the Apostles' Creed, as you think about how the creed says that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, and then it goes straight to suffered under Pontius Pilate. <laughs> so there's nothing between his birth and his suffering under Pontius Pilate, which would be a, a really strange way to uh, speak about a person at a funeral, wouldn't it? Uh, they were born. On this day, they died. Uh, we wouldn't do that because there's so, so many important things that happen uh, with, between our birth and our death. But the Apostles' Creed is trying to highlight and summarize that which is of central importance and to say that this Jesus was born to die. He was born to die. I mean, here in the text, everybody is praising Jesus for his mighty works, and yet the Creed doesn't even mention a mighty work. It's because the crucifixion and the resurrection are of such central importance. And it's the whole story of the Bible, isn't it? As my friend Sam Alberry summarized uh, recently on Twitter, Genesis 22, a lamb for one man. Exodus 12, a lamb for a family. Leviticus 16, a lamb for the nation. And in the Gospels, a lamb for the world. And we all sing now, worthy is the lamb. This is the grand story of redemption. And the good news of Easter is that we have, as John says in Revelation, a slain lamb who is standing. He is the standing slain lamb. And that's what Easter is all about, Christ triumphing over our enemies. I love how Luther quipped one time, our Lord has written the promise of resurrection, not in books alone, but in every leaf in springtime. And so as you, as you think about the beauty of this day and this week that it just looks to be beautiful, remind yourself of the promise of resurrection as you see the leaves, as you see the beauty of creation. Now, here in our text, we read of Jesus entering into Jerusalem in what is probably a familiar text to you if you've been around the church at all. But if, it's, if, if you haven't, if you don't know this story, we welcome you. And it is a fascinating story. Jesus is riding in, um, and his, his, his entry is quite strange in so many ways. And his entry is also uh, controversial. He is the controversial Christ. Henry Nouwen once said about this uh, event, Jesus went to Jerusalem to announce the good news to the people of the city, and Jesus knew that he was going to put a choice before them. Will you be my disciple or will you be my executioner? 
And I would submit to you today that Jesus is riding into your life and he's confronting you with a choice. Will you be his disciple? So we, we read this story, but it's not just a story that is entertaining or fascinating. The, the whole story here is meant for us to reorient our whole lives and follow Jesus to be his disciple. I've chosen Luke's version. Uh, this account is in all four of the Gospels, and that it, uh, is, is significant that they would all include this particular story. Uh, each story has its own uh, nuances and distinctives. They're not in any way uh, contradictory, but complementary, as each of them only have so much space to write about certain things, right? Uh, and so they're including details that are appropriate for their audience uh, and things that they want to highlight uh, within their kind of theological agenda in their particular gospel. And uh, Luke's gospel begins a very striking way. As Luke says, he is writing, by the way, Luke wrote two, two books, Luke and Acts. He's writing to Theophilus, um, and he says that he wants to present an orderly account to Theophilus concerning other things about Jesus. Remember last week in Ecclesiastes, we talked about how the teacher had good order. That's a mark of a good teacher. Luke is writing here an orderly account of the things uh, that pertain to Jesus. And the purpose of that, Luke chapter 1, verse 4, is so that he says, Theophilus, you might have certainty related to Jesus. Certainty. That sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> Luke's entire book is written for you to have certainty, assurance, confidence in Jesus Christ. There are so many things today I have no certainty about. <laughs> but what we get to do is look at the authentic Jesus in these uncertain times, and we can rest. We can be assured. We can be assured that Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, right? And so, again, we... We are not COVID-centered this morning. We are Christ-centered this morning. We're going to focus our attention on Christ, and therefore fear will not rule the day, mm -hmm. but faith in Jesus will rule the day. This, this writer, Luke, I could go on forever about Luke. But see, he is such a remarkable uh, figure. As you know that Luke wrote these two books, Luke and Acts, and he was a companion of the Apostle Paul. We know that he was also a doctor. And that was uh, practically beneficial for Paul as he was getting beat up all over uh, the Mediterranean world. Uh, he was obviously a historian, not a, not a boring historian who wrote books from libraries, but more like Indiana Jones, who went on great adventures uh, with the Apostle Paul and had eyewitness uh, reports uh, from those who were around the various events of the ministry of Jesus. Uh, and he was also, according to one church tradition, a painter. And we don't know if that's, that's uh, we don't have certainty about that, but we could, we could definitely say that he was an artist in word. Uh, Luke was such a, 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 an incredible writer, and all of his, uh, all, it, uh, both of his books demonstrate kind of this intricate tapestry that he weaves together. Now, there are several distinctives about his own reporting of this event here on Palm Sunday. Luke does not include, for example, Zechariah chapter 9, which Matthew and John uh, include, the text we read earlier, uh, though he does hint that he is aware of it. I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. Only Luke includes Jesus weeping uh, over the city uh, here in verse 41. And so the writers go from uh, the, the writing into the city into uh, different events. And so Luke goes straight into this weeping over the city, 
where John goes straight into the Greeks coming to Jesus, and that triggers Jesus' famous statement, my hour has now come, right? Um, Matthew goes straight into the temple scene, and Mark goes straight into the cursing of the fig tree. Th uh, further, Luke um, abbreviates the cleansing of the temple. He, he, it's a very short uh, account of the cleansing of the temple, and he writes it as if it happened on the same day, though we know from Mark's account it happened the day after, which means I think that Luke intends for us to read it together, to read these, these three stories together. Further, Luke includes uh, this, this uh, sentence, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The others uh, cite this. This is a verse from Psalm 118, but they cite it as it is. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which was one of the, the pilgrim songs uh, that they would sing on their way to Jerusalem. Blessed is a, is a pilgrim who comes in the name of the Lord. But here, Luke uh, gives a theological paraphrase and applies it to Jesus. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke also is the only one of the four writers that includes this sentence, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. He omits the famous uh, uh, Hosanna statement that we're familiar with this, this uh, time of year, which means save us. So the whole world is saying that today. Hosanna, really. But, but Luke is emphasizing peace, and you see it in that inclusion of peace in heaven and glory in the highest, but you also see it in verse 42 as he's weeping over the city, and he says, oh, that you knew the things that made for peace. It's a theme here in Luke 19. And finally, Luke is the only writer that includes this famous rocks will cry out statement. So we have three scenes, three stories that present us with truths about Jesus, and these truths are not accepted by everyone. Jesus here was challenging the conventional views of Messiah, and I would submit to you that these same ideas about Jesus that we read in these stories are still challenged today. But we must receive all of it, because we don't believe in the Jesus of our imagination. We believe in the Jesus of biblical revelation. We receive these truths about Jesus, whether or not uh, they make us comfortable or we like them. But we need them all. We need the whole portrait of Christ. And so in the first story, we see that Jesus is gentle. He's riding in on the donkey. In the second story, we see that Jesus is sorrowful. He's weeping over the city. And in the third story, Jesus is, we might say, severe as he's driving out the money changers and the corrupt individuals in the temple. Recall Paul in Romans chapter 11, as he said, behold the kindness and severity of God. That's what we see here. And this is how Jesus reveals the true nature of God to us. As Paul says in Colossians 1, he is the visible image of the invisible God. Well, how does he make God visible? What do we see about God? What is God like? <laughs> and we see God on a donkey. We see God with tears. We see God with a whip. Here is the Son of God revealing the true nature of God to us. And not everyone wants this God. But this is the God we need. Jesus is presented here with a different mood in all three scenes. And in each mood, there is a corresponding action 
And with each mood and action, there are words that Jesus says to interpret what he's doing. It's a marvelous tapestry that Luke includes. Former pastor John Stott, the late pastor John Stott, also argues that Luke means for us to see these scenes in sequence. That is, Jesus is the accessible savior. He's on a donkey. He will ride into your heart the same way he rode into the city of Jerusalem with gentleness and grace. But if you don't receive him, he weeps over you. And after weeping, he judges you. You can have Jesus in his gentleness, or you will face Jesus in his severity. Well, let's walk through these stories together. The gentleness of Jesus. Verse 28, Luke has been saying all along that Jesus is uh, making a way to Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, he's, he set his face, uh, echoing the words of Isaiah, toward Jerusalem. And now, Jesus is still in that same attitude. He is resolutely going up to Jerusalem, as the text says there in verse 28. It's always going up to Jerusalem. It's an ascent uh, that is not just a physical ascent. Uh, it is, but it's also meant to be sort of an ascending uh, to, to God, to his presence, and so on. And here Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem means uh, foundation of peace or city of peace. You can hear Shalom in Jerusalem, right? We give cities nicknames. Uh, Motor City, City of Brotherly Love, uh, Sin City, uh, Steel City, City of Oaks. Here is the city of peace, and it is the king of peace coming into a people who need peace. Verse 29, Luke mentions that Jesus draws near to Bethany and Bethphage. These are villages on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus is carefully preparing to enter the city uh, when we read in verse 30 that Jesus gives his disciples some very interesting instructions. He tells them to go into the village that is in front of them, where on entering, they're going to find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. He says, untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks, what are you doing? You tell them, the Lord has need of it. <laughs> it's a fascinating thing. So you've got a, a, a colt here that's never been ridden. That's a sign of purity. Uh, the Greek word means a young animal, usually a horse, but sometimes of a donkey. Uh, and he tells them that you're going to find it uh, and when you find it, you need to bring it to me. Now, notice also the colt was tied. Um, this is probably a veiled reference to the ancient promise of Messiah in Genesis 49, verses 10 and 11. Hear those words. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, that is, the, the king, the ruler, the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. And then the writer says, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. A text that speaks of the Messiah's reign related to that whole prophecy is this idea of a colt being tied up. And if anyone asks you, you tell them the Lord has need of it. Now, I thought that would be a very convenient thing to say. <laughs> Uh, you kids, don't get any bad ideas, all right, uh, when you do something wrong or take something that doesn't belong to you. I thought about this the other day, uh, a few weeks ago. Now, uh, James and I, my son, 
had we went to get my hot tub because we moved, and I, I I can't leave my hot tub at the old house. I've got to have, you know, my my hot tub. Uh, and the problem is, it's an eight person hot tub, and it's two of us that went over to move a hot tub. And as we were lifting it and hoisting it over a fence, <laughs> it was quite a feat, I must say. Um, there a lady stopped and was just watching us, and I said, "Can I help you?" And she said, "No, I'm just I'm just watching." <laughs> And I had been listening to a sermon on this text, and I just wanted to say, the Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of it. But, uh, but I didn't go there. Anyway, I think she took video and probably turned it into the police because it looked like we're, we're still in a hot tub. Uh, but, the, but, the, but Tony had need of it. Um, now, what, what you should see here, there's a lot of mystery in this text. Is Jesus, is, is he demonstrating a, a, an omniscience? Is he doing some, some miracle here? Um, possibly. Uh, we don't really know. Most likely, I think this was a prearranged plan with this individual. This is some kind of even password or some kind of clue uh, that uh, it's his disciples that, that need this cult. Um, Jesus was uh, familiar with Bethany. He went to Bethany a lot. So uh, that's, that's very, very possible. Um, but what is very important to see uh, is not to get mixed up in how all of that happened, but to see that Jesus is in charge of the events. Jesus is in charge in Holy Week. We, we can't see Jesus as a victim who could not overcome the Romans or the religious leaders or Pontius Pilate. You remember that great phrase in John's Gospel, no one takes my life, I lay it down. Jesus gave himself up for us. And here he's arranging all the events. He is in charge. And he is, he is staging this event so carefully because he wants everyone to know who he is. That, that's why all of this is happening. He is deliberately fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9. Now, Matthew and John, again, record Matthew 9, and they, they each put a, a bit of application in their, in their quoting of it. Matthew 21 says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. In John 12, fear not. It's good news for us. The king who's riding in means we don't have to fear today. Your king is coming. He's sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, I said that Luke hints that he's aware of this, and I think that's, uh, that hint is when he says, the king, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, other, rather than, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke knows that the king is riding in to the city. Now, the disciples don't understand everything. That's clear in John 12. But Jesus knew what he was doing. Jesus was fulfilling prophecy. He's revealing his true identity by this strange exhibition. He wants people to understand who he is. Now, <clears throat> at the time... Of, of this this whole event, uh, you know there are messianic expectations, and there were all kinds of fanatical revolutionary expectations of Messiah. In fact, uh, Judas the Galilean uh, led the the so-called Zealot party, and he had led a revolt in A.D. six uh, against the Romans, and part of the thing they were uh, rebelling against was paying taxes. Imagine that. Um, and the Zealot Party continued uh, after the quelling of that particular rebellion, uh, and they held out until A.D. 74 at the, uh, the ancient site of Masada. 
uh, the great fortification built by Herod the Great until the Romans overtook them. So, so Jesus is riding in in this sort of climate where everyone wants there to be some warrior. They, they want a military political messiah who will get Rome off of them and they can once again be, become this, this mighty superpower. And Jesus comes in not on a war horse, but on a donkey. He comes in not with weapons, but only a weapon of love. And he wants everyone to know, I am that king promised in Zechariah. Now, if you remember, we worked through uh, the prophets, and they're, they're not easy to work through, especially that book, as our good brother Deuce uh, knows so well. But let me remind you of, of those verses we just read, how the, the, the text talks about the coming of Jesus but also, like the prophets often do in the same breath, talk about the second coming of Jesus. They talk about things that will happen later. And I think that's verse 10 of Zechariah, how Jesus' reign will go eventually from sea to sea, right? From the river to the ends of the earth. This Jesus would come in on a donkey. He would come in in humility. He will come again in great power. He will come again and his glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Well, that gets us to verse 32. The disciples follow the instructions. That, that was a good day. Uh, so those who were sent away found it just as they had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. This is a display of honor that they, they would throw uh, their cloaks uh, on the colt as well as verse 36, as they rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, kind of laying out the royal carpet. The other riders include the famous palm branches that, that Luke uh, doesn't mention. Also a display of homage, of honor, of the king riding in to the city. 37, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. They're still putting the pieces together regarding Jesus. They know he's done mighty works. Again, most of them were expecting this guy who can do mighty works to overthrow the Romans and be more of a political military messiah. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Luke adds this little bit on peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And if you're familiar with uh, Luke's gospel, that ought to sound like the birth narrative of Jesus. In Luke chapter 2, verse 14, the angels cried, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to, to people he favors. So think about that. Luke is here saying when Jesus is born, peace is proclaimed. and the beginning of Holy Week, peace is proclaimed. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's riding into the city of peace, riding on an animal that symbolizes peace, and he is praised as the king of peace. In Jesus Christ, we have an already but not yet peace. We have it right now, we enjoy it right now, and one day we will enjoy total shalom in a new Jerusalem, and the whole world will be filled, that new creation, with his peace. And Luke wants us to see that. He's emphasizing the coming of Jesus, the work of Jesus, means that we 
We are a people of peace, and we are a people of praise. Some of the Pharisees got upset about all this commotion about Jesus, and Jesus responds back to them. If they were silent, the very rocks would cry out. <laughs> the Pharisees are not upset. They're, they're upset about all of this. Uh, the crowds, you guys have gone too far. Um, they not only are just sort of the cold water committee, but down at the end of the text, they want to kill him. And Jesus says, if they don't confess my greatness, the creation will. God will be praised by his creation. We see in the Bible that rocks are crying, trees are clapping, mountains are skipping, the sky is proclaiming, and everything that has breath is called to praise the Lord. It's important for us to see that in the highs of life, in the lows of life, Christ is worthy of praise. And I don't know if it's been a while since you've just thrown your head back and sunk uh, with, to the top of, uh, almost said the top of your lungs, to whatever that phrase is. And you just, you just sing to the Lord. You need to do that. You need to not live in your head so much and live in your heart. You need to sing when it doesn't make sense to sing. You need to sing in the midst of uh, an awful situation. You need to just tell the Lord how great he is in song. Jesus rides in as the king of peace. We get his peace. He gets the praise. Mm. Now, unfortunately, we read on in the Gospels, and you find that this crowd was a fickle bunch. They really crown him king for just one day because, again, Jesus would not meet their expectations. Many in this crowd are, are going to be disappointed with Jesus. And I wonder if you can identify with that. Have you ever been disappointed with Jesus? Because he's not the kind of Jesus you want. Jesus wasn't the Messiah everyone expected. He wasn't the Messiah everyone wanted. But Jesus Christ was and is the Messiah everyone needs. And Luke is showing us his beauty. He's showing us his gentleness. Think about Jesus is on a donkey, kids. You can touch him because he's so low. He's accessible. He's gentle. A lot of people don't like this Jesus. Uh, the German philosopher Nietzsche hated this about Jesus. He despised Jesus, calling Jesus weak and the God of the sick and the God of the cross. Praise God, he's the God of the sick and he's the God of the cross. This is such a wonderful truth about Jesus. You can touch him. He's accessible. He's gentle. It's a great book, just came out. I just received it in the mail by Dane Ortland entitled Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Jesus for Sinners and Sufferers. Gentle and Lowly. And uh, Ortland points out that the only place in the Gospels where Jesus tells us about his heart, we see this throughout the Gospels, we're seeing it here, but the only place he actually says something explicitly about his heart is Matthew 28, when Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's what Jesus chooses to use to describe his heart. Gentle, humble. You can touch him. You can grab him. You can receive him. Who would have ever thought up such a savior, Ortland says. And he points out that this Greek word for gentle only appears three times in the New Testament, once 
as Peter writes about women and their, their inner disposition in 1 Peter 3, the beatitude, blessed are the meek, it's the same Greek word, and then in the text that we're reading here, as Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, or as Matthew writes about the triumphal entry, Jesus' gentleness is on display as he is riding into the city. Ortland says, meek, humble, gentle, Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. That's so good. Open arms. Mm. Orland says, the point he is saying is that Jesus is lowly, is that he's accessible. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No prerequisites, no hoops to jump through. The minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simply open yourself up to him. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you. No payment is necessary. And he says, I will give you rest. Praise God, our Savior is reachable. He's accessible. He will have us. That's scene number one, the gentleness of Jesus. Let me hurry through the next two scenes. We see the sorrow of Jesus. I won't re read all these verses here in verses 41 to 44, but you see now that Jesus draws near and he sees the city. He's at this beautiful place that hopefully some of you, if you haven't already, will get to visit one day at the Mount of Olives as you're, you have this spectacular sight of Jerusalem. And the king has shown up, and Jesus perceives that they don't know who he is, and consequently, he weeps. Now, Luke has already touched on the sorrow of Jesus in Luke chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. Jesus was so close to them, and they didn't believe him. And that's a tragedy. To be around the things of Jesus all the time but miss him. And Jesus lament, laments. He says, Oh, that you knew the things that made for peace. What makes for peace? What makes for peace is receiving the king of peace. Mm -hmm. Through Jesus Christ, we have peace with God, and we can experience the peace of God, which Paul says transcends all understanding. It's unexplainable, but it's in Christ. What gives Jesus these weeping eyes are blind eyes. People who can't see him for who he is. My friends, this is important for us, I think. Jesus is never unmoved by unbelief. It causes him to weep. He says their, their willful blindness, verse 43 and 44, will lead them to destruction, that is to judgment. This is a statement about the Roman invasion that would come. The city would be totally destroyed. Dash you to the ground, you and your children within you, which was a manner of speaking about complete overthrow. Why? Verse 44, you did not know the time of your visitation. And what time was that? It's the time that he's in and the moment. The king came. 
just as the prophets foretold. And they did not receive him. As John opens his gospel and says, he came into his own and his own did not receive him. And Jesus here is sorrowful. He is a weeping savior. The savior comes into the city and he will come into your life in gentleness. He will come in and save you. He will come into your life and your heart and give you peace. But if you reject him, you have to walk through a puddle of tears. He weeps over unbelief. And I think, my friends, if you are a Christian, you need to have the heart of Jesus Christ. To have the peace of Christ, but not the tears of Christ, is problematic, isn't it? To be a Christ follower means that we follow in the ways of Jesus. We do weep over the unconverted and we, we pray for them. We need to have this kind of heart. That moves us to this third scene. Jesus cleanses the temple. Luke, as I said, abbreviates the account, account in verses 45 and 46. We see that Jesus was zealous for the proper worship of God. This too fulfills a prophecy like Malachi 3 verse 1. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. Now think about it. The Holy Week, this is during Passover. And there were thousands of pilgrims in the city. And people had to pay the half shekel tax uh, in order to change their money. So the money changing was important as they would try to buy their sacrifices. But this had turned into a business monopoly uh, led by the high priest Annas. And it had led to the exploitation of the poor. And it turned, as Jesus says here, the temple from a house of prayer into a den of robbers. Now, the other accounts explain this to be a, a rather violent scene. John tells us that Jesus was making a whip and drove out the animals and overturned the tables. Drive out is a very strong verb. It's used elsewhere for casting out demons. Jesus is driving out. Jesus is, we say, cleaning house. Now, there are some people who don't want a gentle Jesus, like Nietzsche. They want a military messiah like many of these. There are some people who don't like a tearful Jesus. They think that makes Jesus look weak, or they want Jesus just to fix everything and that we won't have any tears right now. But that will have to wait. That will happen one day. But right now we have tears. And there are people who don't like a severe Jesus. They don't like a Jesus who judges. This is outrageous to many people. They can't imagine one who comes in a temple and does this sort of thing. But Jesus is the righteous judge. And we embrace everything that scripture tells us. So you can receive Jesus and he can ride into your life or you can reject him and he will weep and he will eventually judge. These are the three scenes. Let's put them all together. He's gentle, riding on a donkey. He's sorrowful, weeping over the city. He's severe, cleansing the temple of its commercialization. Jesus here is making his final appeal to the people to receive him. And when they gave their signs that they did not receive him, they were not going to receive him, he wept over them and anticipated their rejection. And then in his holy zeal, he put his severity on display, driving out the corrupt hypocrites 
in the temple. So the appeal to us is very simple today. Let's receive Jesus as our King. Let's praise the King of peace. We live in very, very uncertain days, but there is peace in a person, in Jesus Christ. He comes to us meek and gentle. He's accessible. He's gracious. He says he will give us rest. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, he himself is our peace. And he would make that peace through a violent death on a cross, and that's where we are headed this week, to that place. Luke tells us in verses 47 to 48 that they were seeking to destroy him. But it wasn't Friday yet. Friday would come. The Son of God on a donkey. The Son of God in tears. The Son of God with a whip would be the Son of God on a cross. And then soon, though, the curtain of the temple would be torn in two and Jesus would give us access to the Father. Mm. We can now meet God, not in a temple, but in a person. Through Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who has brought us near by the blood of the cross. The good news today for sinners and sufferers is that we can have everlasting peace through this crucified, risen, and reigning and returning King. We can have his eternal peace. We can seek him in prayer daily, casting all our cares upon him. We hang on his words as this crowd does. As Paul says in Colossians 3, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And then he says, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. That's where the peace comes. That's how we experience it, as the word of Christ dwells richly in us. The word that tells us good news about the future, like this. Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Recall that John was writing this on the island of Patmos, practicing social distancing. <laughs> he was in quarantine on Patmos. And what does this guy who's in quarantine get a vision of? The redeemed people of God, assembled together. Here we are, away from each other today, but not apart from a glorious vision that sustains us. All made possible through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word today. May it build us up in our most holy faith. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your gentleness. I pray in this time you would give us rest. A rest that is underneath all other kinds of rest. A deep rest of our soul. We thank you for your mercy, for your grace. We don't want the rocks to cry out in our place. Mm, no. We praise you today in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen.